we begin 2018 together, there, is, uh, there has been for months now in our church family an emphasis on prayer. And I'm so grateful for that. It's been wonderful for us to focus on prayer. We're going to kind of wrap up that special season of prayer. Not, of course, that we want to stop praying. But we're going to wrap up that special season of prayer today at 1 o'clock. We're going to come together. We're going to talk some about what it is that we experienced. Some of you have been praying 15 minutes a day specifically. And we're going to be talking about maybe that experience that you've had. We're going to talk about what we've done over the last few months in terms of special congregational prayer. We're going to pray together. And let me start by asking you, uh, and we're going to do this right now, but I'm asking you to pray for one specific individual in the next little while. His name is Mike, and Mike has been coming to our service for the last, oh, month, month and a half. He's come off and on much longer than that, but during the last month and a half or so, he's been very regular, usually sits over here, and you've seen him probably in an orange coat. And Mike went into uh, detox on Friday morning. He um, will be there for a few days, about five days or so, and then Hopefully, he'll get right into treatment. It may take him a little bit before he gets into treatment, and that's one of the things I really want you to pray for is because one of the things that we find is that we work with individuals who go through detox, and then it's really appropriate for them to go into treatment, and sometimes a treatment spot is not available to them immediately. And if you're on the streets, and you're an alcoholic, and you go through detox and then get out, and you might have a month where there's nothing that you can do, you've got nothing, no treatment to go into, no bed is available or whatever, What are you going to do for a month if you're an alcoholic living on the streets? It doesn't matter whether you've been through detox or not. You're going to get back to drinking. And we've seen that numerous times over and over again, and we don't want that to be the case with Mike. And so if you would pray for him, I would really, really appreciate it. And I want to pray for him right now. So let's bow, please. Lord, I'd pray that you would bless uh, our friend Mike today. And in the coming days, as he goes uh, through his alcoholic detox and then as he prepares to go into treatment, and Father, my, my number one prayer right now is that you would get him to treatment quickly. We pray that the opportunities would be available for him to have a bed or a spot or whatever it is needed for him to get into a treatment center, that it will be effective for him. And God, we pray that, that this would be a long-term success for Mike. He has tried so many times to go through this kind of thing before. We want this to be successful. It's going to be successful, God, when you are present in his life. The last thing that he said to me as he was uh, getting into my truck and then as we drove, he said, I need a Bible. And so I got him a Bible, God, as you know. I'm just so grateful that he has that. I pray that during the time that he's at detox that he'll read that Bible. I help him to do so, and I pray that it, that it, that it changes his life, that you, God, will work through your word to transform Mike's life, Uh, and help us to be great support for him, uh, great church family for him in every way that we can be. We pray these things through Jesus. Amen. I want you to turn, if you would, uh, to the book of Hosea. It's on page 636 in the Pew Bibles. You notice that we have a new banner up, the Minor Prophets, Servants of the Reigning King. We're going to go through about 10 of these minor prophets. There are 12. We're going to do 10 of them. A couple we won't do. And we're going to start today with just a jewel of a book. And before we get into Hosea, there's a a few things that I'm going to do uh, kind of introductory-wise to the minor prophets just very quickly. I'd love to do a whole thing on the minor prophets in terms of introduction, but we're going to jump into Hosea here in just a few moments anyway. 
And the first thing I want to say to you is that these books are Christian scripture as much as the Gospel of John or Romans. And sometimes we forget that. We're a little bit detached historically and maybe even emotionally from the minor prophets. And so it just seems like, are these as much scripture as all the other books say in the New Testament? But indeed, they are. Somebody was joking, we were talking about, uh, when we were doing this banner, Jonathan kept talking about how maybe when we have uh, the banner, we should have a big prophet, and then we'll have a wee little minor prophet (laughs) on the banner. Or maybe a series of little minor prophets. But the word minor here doesn't refer to their significance, and it certainly doesn't refer to their physical size, or the size of their voice, or anything like that. It refers instead simply to the length of the books. The reason that, that uh, minor prophets are minor is because it's not as long as Isaiah. It's not as long as Jeremiah. Not as long as Ezekiel or some of those other prophets that are the major prophets. And so we need to hear what God wants to say to us through these scriptures and recognize the significance of them and, sa- and recognize also that they're not minor. They're only minor in size in terms of the length of the books. But when it comes to the weightiness of the teachings of the minor prophets, they are oftentimes huge, and in fact, very timely in certain circumstances. And that's one of the reasons we wouldn't read these books, is we would think, well, they're not so timely for us. They don't mention Jesus specifically. doesn't talk so much about some of uh, the key elements to New Testament theology, and so we shouldn't be needing to focus as much on those. And I would say, uh, no, not at all. That's an absolutely inappropriate perspective on the minor prophets. And in fact, some of the theology, some of the really important theology of the, that God wants to, to express in scriptures is found in these very books in the minor prophets. And so I hope you take seriously this study in the minor prophets this morning. We want to hear what God has to say to us through the minor prophets. Well, th- three other kind of quick pieces of information I want to give you about the minor prophets this morning as we move on. First of all, One of the ways minor prophets are identified and categorized is according to the time period in which they wrote. So it's typical to refer to an 8th century prophet or a 7th century prophet or a prophet who was there before the exile or a prophet who came after the exile. Those kind of of chronological markers tell us something about the prophet. And the fact is, is that in addition to that, their time period often determines their message and how their message should be viewed. And so the minor prophet will tell us something about his time period. Oftentimes, I think this reflects on our time period as well. But we can get a picture for what the prophet's trying to say and the significance of it just by noting the chronological time period. So their message is wrapped up very much with the time in which they wrote. I also wanted to say that the word prophecy describes something that is much more than just telling the future. And in fact, when you read the minor prophets, They're not so much talking about the future, although they certainly do that. Even Hosea today, we're going to discuss some of that. There are future-looking things within the minor prophets and the major prophets, but really the point of prophecy here is that it's a message from God. It's a message from God for his people, for God's people to hear what the Lord has to say through any particular prophet. And Hosea is the same way with that as any of the other prophets. So, some things about Hosea then as we actually move on and look at this book today. Hosea is a mid-8th century prophet, which means he wrote after the nation of Israel was divided into what was called Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know this history. At one point, God decides that he has to punish his people. 
And the fact is that the ten northern tribes, which historically had broken off and were separated from the southern tribes, had become earlier kind of a, 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 per, a people that was more idolatrous and sinful than the southern people. And so Hosea actually is, is speaking to and writing to a certain people there, and he is a mid-century prophet and, in fact, is focused specifically on the things that are happening at that time period before the exile. It's also a fact that he prophesied for 38 years. And so we don't read all, obviously, of his ministry. We want to read the short, relatively short book of Hosea. It's, what, about 11 chapters long, I think, maybe 14 chapters long now that I think about it. It's 14 chapters long, and that's obviously not going to encompass 38 years of ministry and preaching. But that's what happens. He preaches for 38 years to God's people. Probably the book of Hosea is in some ways a summary of, of the kind of things that he was preaching. He certainly addresses the needs that are present within Israel over that, that time of period. He is also from the north, writing primarily to the north with some of his prophecy directed to the south. And there are, some, uh, and there are so many mentions of Judah in the book, Judah being the southern kingdom, that it may have been written from Judah even though primarily intended for the north. So Hosea is from the north. He apparently goes to the south and then preaches about the north while he's living in the south. And so he makes numerous references to the south when really he's focused on the northern kingdom. And all of that, I talked about this chronology and how significant that is, all of that says something about his ministry. Because if you're from the north, at this point in history, there was not a good relationship between the north and the south. So it's good that he is preaching to the north as somebody from the north because the people from the south probably aren't going to listen to him very well. But at the same time, he apparently is living in the south and recognizing even then the sins that are present also uh, within Judah. So all of this says something to us about who Hosea is and what it is that he's trying to say. Now, let me get to the point of this book right away. Now, I'm actually going to do this from another book because it sums up so well and is also so well known to you the theme of Hosea, maybe without you even knowing it. And what I mean is this. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Don't, don't turn there. I have it on the screen here in just a second. But you know this verse. And if you're thinking to yourself right now, <laughs> no, I don't. How would I know Lamentations 3, 22 and 23? I'll tell you why. Because it goes like this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. Now a lot of you know that song. I was really expecting you would break into song with me and I wouldn't have to do a solo. But no, you're just going to stare at me while I sing. So we know this song. Now in the NIV, it reads a little bit differently. It reads like this. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. And the verse goes on. Well, this, I think, sums up as much as anything 
what Hosea is about. And I don't know if that surprises you or not. It may. You might be thinking, well, I thought the minor prophets were filled with all kinds of judgment and discussion of Israel's sins and all the horrible things that Israel was doing. Well, there's a point to that, and that's certainly true. But we're going to see, as we look through Hosea very quickly today, that really, this is the point. That more than anything, this minor prophet, Hosea, wants to say to God's people, yes, you are sinful. You are idolatrous. You have not been what God wants you to be. But the Lord loves you. God's steadfast love will preserve you. That when things are at their darkest moments for the people of Israel, that indeed God loves us so much that he'll always take us back, always willing to be in relationship with us. So, how does Hosea give us this message? Well, at the beginning of the book, it is all by analogy and the story of Hosea's life. Hosea is told by God to do something we would never expect, to take a wife who is naturally, it would appear, adulterous. Now, just imagine, the prophet is being told by God, take an adulterous wife. And for those of us who sit here today, that seems pretty odd, really strange. In fact, by the way, before I read a portion here from Hosea chapter 1, I probably need to say something like, this is mature content for audiences above 18 uh, and older only. And so there might be moments here when you're little kids, if they're listening to what's going on, you might want to put your hands over their ears or something like that, okay? It's amazing that the Bible is like that. But it in fact is. There are things here that we need to recognize are real and that uh, they're real about life. Things really happen. In this case, uh, there is an an interesting kind of comment that's being made and a story that's being told in order to make that kind of comment. So the relationship between Hosea and Gomer becomes an example of the relationship between God and his people. And I want you to look at Hosea chapter 1. I'm going to start with verse 2. And we will read on from there. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer which I don't know if all the women named Gomer are adulterous or not. It's just interesting that this woman's name is Gomer. You know what you think of when, you, when I say the word Gomer? You think of the last name being Pyle, of course. At least if you're my age, you're going to think of Gomer Pyle. Um, there are kids in here who wouldn't know who we're talking about. But at any rate, that seems a bit strange name, but it's just a name. Uh, and, well, it's Gomer. So he married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and, the conce- and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. Now, that's not a line to just be thrown away. First of all, that's the northern kingdom that we're talking about. By this time, the word Israel actually refers to the northern kingdom. The word Judah tends to refer to the southern kingdom. And God says, I'm going to put an end to the kingdom of Israel. The northern ten tribes, I'm going to put an end to them. 
Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel that I should at all forgive them. And that's fascinating because as the book goes on, of course, God does just exactly that. He does continue to show his love and he does forgive them. But at this point, he sounds like he's just a little bit ticked and he's going to overstate the case about what he's going to do with Israel and his perspective toward them. Uh, Verse 7, Yet I will show love to the house of Judah and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. After she had weaned Lo-Ruamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Loami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited, and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And it's fascinating that even here, at the very beginning of the book, when God has already indicated that he's a little bit angry, already he's also indicating his steadfast love. He's already talking about the future and saying there's going to come a time when I'm indeed going to take these people back and there's going to be good relationship again. Okay, well, we continue on because God wants to say some more things to Israel as he prepares them for... Can you move me on there, Heech? Thanks, bud. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children, because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. And so clearly, God is talking about Israel. He's talking about the nation and the way in which they have been adulterous and idolatrous at the same time. And God wants things to change. He wants there to be, instead, close relationship between them. And it's amazing how already, at this point, we've heard so much of the story of the rest of the book of Hosea. I'll tell you, we're not going to read the whole book today. But this sums up already, in one way, all that God really wants to happen between his people and himself through the prophet Hosea. And that certainly is the case by the time we get to the end of chapter 3. So I want you to look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver. That's interesting. And about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. 
For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. And what he's talking about there is the, is the exile. He's saying, I'm going to send them into exile. But even while contemplating exile, even while reflecting on the people's sins, even while thinking about how horrible they have been in their idolatry and adultery with God, God is ultimately concerned to have them back. God loves them. And again, by the time you get to the end of chapter 3, the story has pretty much been told of what Hosea was trying to do, where the people were at, and what God wanted to do with his people. Well, the rest of the book really just expands on this story, and it does so in about three different moves. First, Israel's idolatrous unfaithfulness is spelled in chapters 4 through 6, or the start of 6. We're not going to read all of that. You can read it for yourselves. It's fascinating, uh, just all the things that were part of God's people. And it's pretty difficult to even imagine that they could call themselves God's people when there was so much idolatry and Baal worship among them. Uh, really some horrific things that they did. I, things I, I won't talk about because we don't have uh, all the children out this morning, but it'd be, it'd be horrible uh, to be a part of a world in which people who were calling themselves God's people lived the way these people were living. Um, Israel's coming punishment through the exile was also foretold, and so there is some foretelling in this book as, uh, foretelling in this book as Hosea predicts what's going to come in the future. And then finally in chapters 11 through 14, there's the, the, the consummation, really, of what Hosea's message is to Israel, and, uh, and it's a message of love. It's a message of steadfast devotion and love and care, faithfulness on God's part to his people. Okay, so there's the story. That's what Hosea does. That's what the book says. But what is this? What's in this for us? What's the message for us? And first of all, I just want to say that it's hard to read Hosea and not ask yourself if you are not the unfaithful wife. If I am not the unfaithful wife. My sins are not exactly the same as those of the people of Israel. I'm not sure that I've ever thought about actually sacrificing one of my children, although I think my wife might have been angry enough at times that she could have moved there. And some of you parents might think, I could get to that point. But of course not, not really. And so sometimes I look at Israel's sins and I think to myself, man, that, that was horrific. How could they possibly have gotten to that point in their relationship with God? And then I look into my own heart. And there are times when I recognize the depth of my corrupted human nature. And when I realize just how far I can actually be from what God wants me to be. That's actually possible in my own life. And so one of the things that's so full in the the minor prophets is the message that although this is Israel, there's a sense in which this is us. We are the ones who are constantly sinning before the Lord. We have the same kind of heart. We have the same kind of mindset. We could go there just as easily, I think, as they do. 
Do some of the specific sins actually fit? Well, I would say that there are some who, that actually do fit. Like I look at what Hosea talks about, or especially someone like Amos, and the way that Amos talks about social injustice. The social injustice that's present in Amos, and sometimes in Hosea, I think does depict the kind of mindset that can be ours today, even in the part of Christians. It may be that we're not caught up in the same kind of idolatry with the Canaanites, but there is a kind of idolatry that is present within Canada. And we in Canada sometimes express not a disdain for God, but a rejection of what God is trying to give us and what he wants us to be when we go after our own kinds of gods. Do I turn to the Baals? No. But sometimes I can worship material prosperity. We don't leave God for other gods, but sometimes our God becomes ourselves. It's not to the high place we go to worship, but sometimes we go to the marketplace, to the malls, where we buy the things that attract and hold our attention and unfortunately even our allegiances. And so sometimes I read Hosea and I think to myself, I'm indeed like the unfaithful wife. And I think you can be too. It doesn't take much discernment to recognize just how evil the human heart can become if we allowed it to do so. Secondly, we need to take sin more seriously in our age of grace. I want you to look at Hosea chapter 6. And we'll start with verse 4. What can I do with you, Ephraim? Ephraim was, of course, one of the ten tribes. Uh, 12 tribes, but in the 10, it was in the northern portion of Israel, and therefore he's preaching to them. But then he also says, what can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Your love is there for only a moment. The sun comes, and it's as if it dries up, and your love is gone. Therefore, I cut you off in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgments flashed like lightning upon you. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Sometimes we go through the motions, and you know this as well as I do. We today can go through the motions, and our hearts at the same time can be a long ways from where God wants them to be. Like Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me, to, to me there. Gilead is a city of wicked men, stained in footprints of blood. As marauders lie in ambush for a man, so do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, committing shameful crimes. I've seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There Ephraim is given to prostitution, and Israel is defiled. We need to take sin more seriously in our age of grace because it's pretty clear to me that the prophet is saying that God does. And one of the things that happens because we have Jesus who's died for us on the cross and because his grace extends to us and our sins are forgiven is that it is unfortunately easy for us to not take sin as seriously as what God apparently takes it himself. Paul says, like in Romans chapter 6 verse 1, don't go on sinning so that grace will abound. But sometimes I think that we do not just because we want grace to abound, but because we know that it does. 
And so it's easy to stay where we are, expecting that we're going to be forgiven, knowing that we are, when all the time God is expecting something of us, of a higher level of righteousness. I remember one time when I was at Regent College, I was in a class with Eugene Peterson. Some of you uh, may know him. He's the one who translated uh, the message. And he was talking about this kind of very thing, about sin. And, and I made a comment about how we need to be careful about being sinful and take sin seriously. And Peterson turned to me and he said, well, let's not get all moralistic about it. And I thought it was interesting that even he, in the position he was, teaching where he was, seemed to have a perspective and an attitude about grace that didn't take sin all that seriously. And we need to. God wants us to. There needs to be an attitude on our parts that because of the love of Christ, we choose to not make those kind of moral compromises that we otherwise could make. What's the message for us? Well, it's that God's judgment is to be taken seriously, especially when it was his son that was sacrificed on our behalf. And so God's love in Jesus itself calls us to a special and higher kind of ethic. And the the message throughout Hosea is just exactly that, that God loves us the way he does, and because he loves us, we need to respond with faith and with faithfulness. We also hear the message here that it's never too late to repent. I want you to turn to Hosea chapter 14, if you would, the end of the book. Because if you are a person like Kelly Carter, who needs to at times in his life repent, we need to recognize that we never go so far away from God's love that repentance is not for us a possibility. And I love the fact that a book that's filled with identifying the kinds of sins that are present within Israel then ends with the message that despite the sinfulness of God's people, that they always have a chance to come back to him and that God himself compels them to return. And so Hosea chapter 14 verse 1 says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of, your, of our lips. Assyria can't save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For, you, for you, in you the fatherless find compassion. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots. His young roots uh, will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. Men will dwell again in his shade, and he will flourish like the grain. He will blossom like a vine, and his fame will be like the wine from Lebanon. O Ephraim, And throughout this book, he's criticized and judged Ephraim. Oh, Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I I will answer him and care for him. I am like a green pine tree. Your fruitfulness comes from me. Who is wise? He will realize these things. Who is discerning? He will understand them. And the whole point is that God loves his people forever. And so if you do read with me through the minor prophets, 
There are times when you're gonna read this and you're gonna think to yourself, wow, I have sinned before the Lord and he seems really angry about sin. And that is very true. But the message in this book and the message we're gonna hear throughout the Minor Prophets is that God continues to love his people even despite their sinfulness. And so ultimately, it is God's steadfast love, his chesed, that calls us and keeps us and to which we must respond with devotion. Because God loves us steadfastly even despite our sinfulness. The question is, how will we respond to his love? And that's a question, of course, I can't answer for you. You have to answer that question yourself. But the same God who was with them, loving them steadfastly and holding the nation in his hand, waiting for them to return, helping them to return, and taking them back when they come to him, is the same God who, through Jesus, has looked at you and your sinfulness and how far you are at times away from him and who has loved you and accepted you and loved you steadfastly. What are we going to do with a God who looks at our sinfulness and then loves us like that? Let's pray. Lord, like uh, Israel, we can be adulterous. Like people in every generation, we can put other gods before you. But what we see, Lord, here and in our own experiences of grace through Jesus, we, we see your love and your grace extended to us. And there's, there's no one in the room today who doesn't need that. Every one of us does. And so we praise you and we thank you for the grace that we have received. Throughout your history of dealing with humankind and then the grace, the special grace that we have received in Jesus. Thank you for your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy and taking us back again. That we praise you through Christ. Amen.